Hi everybody and welcome to the Antifada. We've got a really awesome episode today. We have with us a returning guest, Phil Neal, the author of a wonderful book. I hope you did a great episode on Hinterlands. Uh, and with him is Nick Chavez. The two of them together have written an excellent piece for EndNotes uh, called Forest and Factory, and we're here to discuss it today. Well, of course, we'll put the link to that um, in the show description so you can read it yourself, but this will be a nice primer and discussion about the whole thing, the science and the fiction of communism. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Tell me, Phil and Nick, uh, how did you guys uh, come together to work on this project, and what was your intention for doing it? Yeah, I think it was, uh, was this your idea, Phil? I think it was. Um, no, I think it was both of ours. We both had uh, kind of a similar impulse to write something, uh, something like this, and then um, there were a couple of pieces that we'd sort of discussed our problems with, like these these utopian kind of visions that we had both read and both kind of complained about in similar ways. And so I think it evolved out of those, uh, out of those discussions. So would you call this like a, um, alternative utopian vision or like a correction or is it, do you, do you, do you see your pieces being utopian? And at one point you say that like the utopians aren't utopian enough. I'm wondering if this is like a alternative or like a different methodology of writing utopian speculation. Uh, well, I think the way that I see it personally is that it still is basically a utopian um, vision or it's operating kind of within that schema. But the way that we pose it is more like here's basically we're, we're, we're saying something like, look, these are all fictive practices. And what we want to do is the hard science fiction version mm -hmm. of utopia rather than these kind of speculative fiction uh Kind of versions, uh, these ones that have these kind of magical uh, realist elements, or uh, these things that just don't quite add up when you uh, look into them, but are very good, like fables for the present or, or for desires in the present, right? We're trying to do kind of the opposite of that. Uh, we're both fans of like the subgenre of sci fi writing that will go on for like pages of, on like just technical scientific things. Oh, uh, you're a big Kim <laughs> so, Stanley Robinson fans, I see. Us too. <laughs> So, so more Robinson and less Le Guin? Uh, I think personally, I actually, I, I recently read Ministry for the Future and I, I can't say I was a big fan of it. Um, I, I like, uh, I like Peter Watts. He's probably my favorite. He's a total STEM Lord. Uh, definitely not the same kind of politics I think that we have, but, um, you know, in terms of uh, what, what's important and the reason I think we like this style of science fiction is that it's, it's grasping, it's grappling with the real world, like as it exists um, and more importantly, it's trying to be internally consistent with um, a kind of logic that actually isn't just like inconsistent for the sake of bringing in plot devices whenever you want it to, you know, however you want it to impact the story. It's like uh, it's it's really grass. It's trying to grapple with how things uh, would need to work in order for your your you know, fiction plot to actually move forward. So obviously we're not, we're not science fiction writers here. We're, we're writing political theory, but uh, the insight that hard science fiction uh, imparts upon what we're trying to do is that if we want to understand how communism might work um, and more importantly, like what it would take to get to a communist future, we have to really understand 
the what you know what our present reality looks like and more importantly like what makes our present reality operate the way it does and what aspects of that reality or the the const the constitutive parts of it would need to be transformed and how they would need to be transformed in order to arrive at this communist future and the the communist future isn't like something that we kind of you know need to preordain and then figure out what to change to get there necessarily but like on some level it is but it's more importantly something that you have to accept will be the necessary unfolding of things as they currently are Mm -hmm. i think what makes it a powerful piece is that you know we know from uh phil's previous work uh doing a sort of geospatial political economy understanding um production uh capitalist production and then nick uh your background in engineering you guys are able to marry that together i think into a very fascinating and interesting and powerful i think critique of how other communists uh try to do the imaginary the communist imaginary the communist horizon whether that's fully automated luxury communism or the kind of two entry points uh of critique that bring that uh from the beginning of your piece, which is um, Soren Mao's uh, recent writings about um, communist politics, I believe, in uh, Sweden, and also Aaron Benenev uh, writing also about speculative uh, communism. Talk a little bit about what your critiques are of the way that, um, that these two uh, spoke about. Um, yeah, I would say that Soren's piece was the... the trigger for kind of finally writing the article um, because it sort of, th there were two things about it, I think. One thing was that we were both familiar with his work. I'd been, um, before his book actually came out, uh, you know, I'd been working with the, the dissertation version of it in writing the uh, book that I'm currently writing. So I was in this kind of close theoretical engagement with his work already. Um, but then uh, this short piece came out. I think it was originally published in uh, some European social democratic uh, newspaper. So that might account for some of the deficiencies, uh, but we we're both very disappointed in the the view of it, especially for um, uh, someone whose theory we had both kind of been familiar with and made use of and was very kind of interesting and kind of detailed. We felt like this vision of communism was kind of lacking and wasn't really applying a lot of the theoretical lessons that was in his a more um, substantial work. From, say, mute, and so, mute compulsion. From mute compulsion, yeah. And so uh, so uh, looking at that, that accounts for some of the structure of, of this piece where we're sort of using elements of Soren's work from uh, this longer book project to kind of counter some of the narratives that we saw in um, yeah, in the, uh, the smaller kind of utopian piece. And the utopian piece also encapsulated a lot of issues that we had both seen regularly, both in writing and in kind of day-to-day -day communication with people, like how people can envision a different world, right? So these things that we see kind of repeated again and again of communism as kind of local autarky, the best idea of scaling up is some vague idea of kind of federation, but this sort of uh, and then more generally, the uh, the impulse to just completely abandon uh, really concrete questions about uh, uh, production, how production will take place at like a technical level, or to choose, you know, examples that are kind of the only things that you can do locally, like um, like woodcraft, you know, if ever going to be a carpenter yeah, or something so how like I, that. I read your reading of the Mao piece, and I, I think I read it too when we interviewed him, so I reminded me of what he said, and I, I thought too, like, wow, you're... 
your vision of communism is, I don't know, it's, he, he's like so technical in mutual compulsion. And then like the vision is these sort of isolated communes that hopefully will have good relationships with their neighbors who may or may not be communes. And there's mm-hmm. this kind of like, there's no overarching order in terms of production or politics on a global scale. Right. It just uh, is kind of like your city's a commune and then maybe the city next door isn't. And it reproduces dynamics of nation states. I think you argue in the piece. We do. And I think this the, this kind of uh, tendency towards envisioning these like autarkic localized uh, communes is kind of is the exact kind of dynamic that we allude to when we when we say that, uh, you know, if we're going to do like hard science fiction of communism rather than like a magical realism of communism, we need to look at, you know, how does production work? And is this is this idea of like locally, largely self-sufficient communes that only kind of occasionally interact with each other? Is that is that a realistic thing? Can that work with the productive technology that we have currently and that communism would need to inherit? And uh, to fill in me, the answer is a resounding no. Like that's that's it's absolutely insane. It's it's not it's not remotely feasible. Um, and I mean, the reasons for that are uh, multifaceted. But the, the the chief thing is that a lot of the the, the entire notion of communism in a in a modern uh, you know capitalist uh, like the type of our envisioning of communist society uh, that has arisen in the kind of like Marxian period of what communism is. Um, is dependent on this idea that uh, the productive machinery that is, you know, currently attuned to a specifically capitalist mode of production, uh, nevertheless has uh, the type of labor time efficiency built into it to enable lives of abundance that uh, prior uh, productive schemas before capitalism were not technically capable of, of producing. And so, of course, you know, you can't just like I, the analogy I like to use is like it, it, there's not just like a big lever at the factory and it's the lever is currently set to capitalism. You just like flip the lever over to communism mm. and then like you've won. It's obviously not not remotely that simple. I thought that's what Xi Jinping was going to do in 2050. <laughs> no, he, they're, the they're building it's the not lever. It's not a lever. It's a button. <laughs> it's a button, guys. Come on. Get with the program. Yeah, it's, I've been I work uh, nights right now at a big uh, sortation logistics facility. I've been searching for the lever. Uh, it's a big facility, so I haven't searched the whole thing. But uh, when I find it, I'll, I'll let you guys know I, I where the, the communism button is. I think is. the Houthis in Yemen have the lever. They've, they've expropriated yeah. the lever. They're doing in the Red Sea right now what you could be doing as a, as a proletarian in that logistics space. You know, the Red Sea coincidence? I think not. <laughs> Parting the Red Sea for communism. Yeah. <laughs> and, but like the – so the, the stakes of this that I – is uh i think pretty central to your piece is is mass death basically it's like it's not just a political question of like should the entire world be communist or should the communists live in their own village it's well if we don't have some sort of global conception of how production and politics and life in general works we're gonna we're looking at like people not having medicine people not having enough to eat uh people yeah not only, you know, under communism, people should be living well. That's like, that's the dream. But if we don't have, if we just like sort of uh, turn off the machine and let it get built back up from the communes, there's going to be mass starvation in uh, one way or another. And, and that is actually um, within the communization current. Uh, that is a conception I've heard some people say. I won't it's the emergency it. break. I mean, this yeah. is like the, the Benjamin's concept of like, you're on, we're on a train, 
uh, the, like the Snowpiercer train, and our goal is to pull the emergency brake. Yeah, but I've I've heard uh, people say in in real life that you know the process of uh, building communist society communization is going to be like 40 years of plagues and primitive surgery. And it's going to be like <laughs> this hellacious moment that humanity passes through. And maybe there'll be like a half billion people left on the other side. Not a great vision. And one that you guys are, especially against. if you like are dependent on insulin, for example, yeah, or eyeglasses. Yeah. Hashtag not all communism, and not all <laughs> communization. Yeah. Uh, um, I think Phil and I have an ambivalence about the term communization theory, not necessarily because we, reject a lot of the work done in that uh, under that name but rather because it's a it's a loaded term that it has a lot of baggage to it and because people kind of think of it as like pull pot communism mm. uh, and that you know couldn't be further than i think what we uh, understand communism to be um i i don't really call myself a communization theorist just because i think it's like it gives people too much of a a pre a weird preconceived notion about like what you know I may think and I which is often just like the opposite of what I think. Um, it doesn't help that a lot of people that call themselves communization theorists, uh, you know, it's it's a very heterogeneous kind of school of thought. There's like there's really not that much like unifying it. So a lot of people are in it are very smart and very like good about this kind of stuff, and other people in it are like lunatics. And right, so yeah. it's like, <laughs> but the, but the starting yeah. point and, and, you know, we've had Soren on the show, we've had Aaron on the show and we've had Phil twice and now we're having both of you on the, the part of it. I think that's interesting. Uh, and, and that we want to hold on to, of course, is understanding the process of building communism as not some sort of like long transitional phase of like state action, but instead directly addressing the social relations of production uh, and not understanding like a caretaker moment where you build the productive forces, but understanding now that in this late decadent moment of capitalist development, that the productive forces are there and that what needs to be affected is not like some state political program, but the direct confrontation with capitalist social relations at the point of production. Is, yeah, is that fair? Yeah. I, I think that's, I mean, I think that's, um, a general kind of recognition that, yeah, is shared across the people who are called communization theory people, uh, but it's also a more general recognition kind of, it's increasingly uh, recognized, I think, across uh, communist theory kind of in general, if we really just look at people who actually, you know, read, uh, actually read it, right? We're not, not kind of the, the broad term of people who kind of vaguely call themselves communists on the internet or something, but people who have engaged with the work of, of Marx and with the work of, of kind of everybody um, coming afterwards, I really don't think of myself as a communization theorist. Um, again, like like Nick, I've been engaged in that and kind of raised up within uh, within that kind of milieu as it sort of formed, especially on the West Coast after uh, kind of post-Occupy sort of politics. So it's been very kind of central to me. Um, I think it's hilarious the way the things that some people think that communization theorist is uh, communization theory is saying based on actually having read it is kind of really weird. It's sort of one of those, uh, those just big mental disconnects, like people who think that like end notes or people who write about, uh, you know, riots or whatever are just envisioning this generalized rioting as, uh, just scaling up into this kind of immediate revolution thing, which is a very strange thing to, to say for texts that are largely about talking about the limits of the riot form and the limits of, uh, this kind of deindustrialized kind of predicament for political subjectivity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, basically, arguments are saying almost the exact opposite of that. Say, like these are the form of a limit 
politically that we haven't been able to overcome, right? Uh, but it's the same sort of phenomenon of people kind of reading almost the exact opposite politics uh, uh, into stuff uh, based on what has, uh, compared to what has actually been kind of like written uh, more extensively. I would just say that I consider myself, you know, I, I very much consider myself like an orthodox communist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a lot of very concrete questions that we can't get away from. We can't shed a lot of the history of uh, of communism, right? When we're talking, even the stuff that we wouldn't, you know, you'd have a lot of people say, well, I don't really think that, um, you know, the Soviet Union is communist. I don't really, I think it like, you know, veered away at this point, whether that be like Stalin or Mao or before or whatever. I, I think that's kind of a cop out in, in many ways. Like a lot of those problems maybe aren't the same uh, that we would face kind of today in terms of like, having this massive peasant base that you kind of have to uh, engage with, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of concrete things that are still there and that are still have to be addressed. And it's very, very weird for uh, people, especially for communists, to sort of dismiss this question of like uh, potential uh, famine, right? Because that's like the first thing that any right-wing person is going to ask you or any like person on the street. Pol Pot did abolish the value form, but at what cost? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's um, let me yeah. um we've we've cleared our throats now and we've all backed away from the live hand grenade that is capital c communization theory uh let's get into your basic precepts for this article you take seriously marx's conception of communism as of course sublating capitalism being a free association of producers talk a little bit about what the non-domination principle means for you guys in your piece and how um, constructing communism as a process can be imagined that way. Um, I guess, yeah, I'll start uh, on this one. I, um, so we, we take it, we take the non-domination thing and the association, association of producers as a kind of a good starting point. I don't necessarily, I, I think personally we could construct better kind of philosophical frameworks that are a little bit more with outside of the, sort of a radical Republican uh, tradition, but I think this is a very good kind of accessible um, way of of talking about some of these things without getting into um, really esoteric kind of philosophy stuff. Um, And this is inspired by William Clare Roberts' reading of Marx in uh, Marx's Inferno, where he talks pretty extensively about Marx's um, uh, debt to kind of the radical Republican tradition and this idea of association of producers and how it's not really linked to a productive forces determinism, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so that's sort of part of the lineage of it. And then the other part of the lineage is actually Soren Mao's own work. I, I don't want to give the impression that we uh, don't, uh, you know, appreciate his his work or don't kind of like his theory. We're very, uh, I, I think that the new compulsion is like the best overview of contemporary Marxist theory that like exists. It's the book that I suggest to everybody to read to get updated on kind of what Marxist thought is nowadays. Um, and in there, he's also very, uh, uh, places a lot of emphasis on that same concept of non-domination as kind of this, this basic negative kind of principle of what, uh, what, what communism is about. And of course, this critique of capitalism as a system, fundamentally a system of social domination that's kind of disguised, disguised itself as just this kind of material society. These interactions between objects disguise fundamental relations of uh, humans dominating other humans, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Go on. I think the, uh, I mean, the, we like, uh, I mean, there's a number of reasons we like uh, Soden's book, uh, Mute Compulsion. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, I also recommend it to people all the time. Um, and I think for, for me at least, uh, I mean, the, the big kind of insight that I got out of it was 
the way that he really brings together this entire concept of of you know the human metabolism with the non-human world and like you know capitalism isn't just uh i mean not that not that you know he invented this this all goes back to marx but like uh mao like ties this all together very well this notion that you know like the human species we all we're, we're dependent on not just each other like as you know humans to humans but like the way that our that we interact with the non-human world our our, our metabolism our I, I forget the german word but like our, our interchange with like the biosphere and like you know minerals and stuff like that that's all um it's all mediated by like physical implements like tools technology but tools and technology have a fundamentally social character um and you know in being social it's something that you know we we don't all just control it as individuals we have to work with each other and you know and in many systems against each other in order to have access to these tools and machines and implements that let us uh you know interact with the non-human world in ways that let us like survive and live like our you know we we need uh we need to eat things you know we need we need fire and we we can't do that without uh having to have this whole kind of uh, that's that's mediated by this this social uh, productive apparatus, and so and under capitalism, it's taken this form of like this massive globally interlinked industrial system, and so uh, we conceive of communism not just as you know non domination, which is a, a critical indispensable part of it, but also the restructuring of this metabolism, this human metabolism with the non human world, along lines that are. Uh, non-dominative, but also uh, fundamentally deliberative mm-hmm. and um, oriented towards ensuring abundance. Um, and these all kind of feed off each other and, in, uh, I guess you could say, dialectically, um, you know, ensure each other, I guess you could say. Your, your vision of the productive um, apparatus under communism, I think, is a very poignant and inspiring one. It's based on... Um, a sort of productive uh, permaculture, like an industrial permaculture. Like if you imagine, you know, a way to interact the metabolism of, of nature is such that you have a, an orchard, um, you know, which is tended and uh, which lives at peace with the rest of the environment. And then one needs simply to like pluck the abundant fruit from that tree, which will regrow and rejuvenate. Imagining industrial production in that way, I think is a very fascinating idea. The The idea of um, reconstructing the productive forces in such a way that sometimes they lay fallow, uh, but they can be utilized um, you know, freely by anybody at any particular time in an industrial permaculture. Talk a little bit about that in this, in this conception of yours. Yeah, I guess I can, I can start with that. Um, so the, there's no like, technical reason that communism is not feasible or anything like that. Like it's a, you know, from a, from a, like, not that you, you can't really cleave apart social and technical considerations there. Uh, as many theorists, uh, you know, including Marx went through great pains to show like technical and social considerations are two sides of the same coin. Um, but insofar as we can kind of think of them as separate things, um, there's not like a technical reason, uh, we can't have communism. It's not like we don't have the productive capacity, you know, like we joked about earlier. It's not like we have to like, build socialism with Chinese characteristics for 300 years or whatever to then have the productive capacity. It's, it's, we have more than enough productive capacity to provide the, all the, all the basic human necessities plus more Mm -hmm. for everybody already. Like, even if you factor in the fact that like, even if everyone works like significantly less hours um, and that's before you get to any kind of like qualitative transformation of, uh, 
the present means of production, which communism would obviously uh, necessitate. Um, and so, yeah, like the productive capacity is there. The point is that we have to restructure it for communist ends and communist ends means, you know, where the social logic of capital, like the, you know, the value form kind of like haunting everything you, um, you know, that that's a socially constituted thing. You, you excise that and then you institute a new social logic that's built upon uh, people cooperating towards mutual enrichment, um, you know, not mediated by, not mediated by these weird abstractions like profit and, um, yeah, you know, then you automatically have communism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, it's not that simple, but you get the idea. I mean, you, you describe this sort of multi-step process of how production is, is reorganized. Um, uh, like, I guess, in the course of this kind of international workers' revolution, and the, the steps are democratization uh, of the production, then the agglomeration of uh, the the sort of individual productions into a greater centralization and then the integration of the these separate spheres of production into a kind of functional productive process that can um both you know reduce the uh the uh the the need for industrial production to a level of above sufficiency without this you know um greater drive to like more and more production on an expanded scale that we currently have. Um, and of course, uh, you know, you do this in several paragraphs, so that's a, a bit of a reduction, but do you think I have that basically right? I would say um, yes, but they're not, they're, those aren't individual steps taken one after the other, which isn't necessarily what you're saying, but uh, I think people would get the impression. Um, so there are tendencies that kind of each occur simultaneously, and which we see as building up kind of throughout the course of, uh, of what we call communist construction. If we want to put it into kind of like this step format, we do conceive, and this I think is actually a, a crucial distinction. Um, this is a legitimate distinction from how many of the communization theorists talk about things. Um, in my mind, it's just much more of a return to kind of orthodox communist kind of themes. But there is this idea that there, um, even if we're beginning this process of communization very kind of immediately, that doesn't quite eliminate this question of kind of transition. And in many ways, that whole question turns into this very frustrating and silly um, uh, kind of pedantic discussion over kind of language and what well, is it a stage or is it not a stage, right? When the concrete thing, which uh, uh, someone kind of mentioned earlier, wasn't really about that. It's whether you had this this supervening state agency that's kind of uh, tending to the whole thing the entire time, et cetera, et cetera. I think we can conceive of a transition without the idea that everything is kind of concentrated in this, this giant state subject overseeing this transitional stage. But there is this kind of transitional, um, uh, transitional kind of phase, which is just obvious. Like if you're doing any kind of phase shift, you're going to have uh, this transitional kind of uh, element to it. And in that, process, all of these tendencies kind of build up. Um, the democratization, so people having more control over how production kind of takes place and how uh, their social role within uh, production. <clears throat> and then you have agglomeration, the idea that many things will uh, be kind of integrated into these kind of more efficient um, uh, forms in both socially kind of efficient in ways that make more sense for democratized systems and then also more um, um, uh, 
technically uh, efficient in many in many senses. And then uh, this integration process is probably the most important because it's the one that sort of breaks down the social ba- uh, barriers and boundaries that are established uh, within uh, capitalist social forms. So this divide between production and reproduction, for example, uh, or the idea that you have this separate kind of sphere of education that then spits you out into um, industry, right? We're talking about the integration of these different kind of spheres of life um, in a in a way that's much harder, I think, to imagine for us kind of anthropologically. And that's a thing that we touch on uh, a lot of, uh, in a lot of places is a lot of this stuff is actually very difficult to imagine. It's, it's, it, because communism entails a, an anthropological revolution, we are talking about something that's very, very difficult to really fully envision given this, the fact that we all have been, you know, raised and our minds shaped within uh, capitalist social relations. Yeah, if I could jump in, if people are interested in this anthropological uh, communist thought experiment, it gets funny and weird and good. And so stick around into the bonus section because we're going to spend like 30 minutes talking about the mushroom mafia. We're going to talk about uh, how Santa will be real under communism. How Santa will actually, Santa will actually, I almost said Satan, how (laughs) Santa will be real, how everybody might have little motorized beanie caps walking around like little dunces. We'll get to that whole thing. But in the meantime, your the anthropological stuff is fascinating, and I think it it pulls out of a lot of the work that's been done to understand the extremely diverse ways that people religiously culturally uh interfaced and interacted within various modes of production and different life ways and I think that you're you're cautioning people away from for example understanding the distribution of goods under communism as necessarily looking like a People's Republic of Walmart, there being like a communism app, which looks like the Amazon app, and you like order a commodity to your door, and your socialist commodity arrives, you know, uh, through your smartphone. Instead, something, imagining something like a global, like in, in, indefinite potlatch, you know, or, or sort of like advanced pseudo-religious, quasi-religious gift economies. I think this is a very interesting speculative way to understand the ways in which um, what we produce and the way we produce ourselves or reproduce ourselves is, has been, uh, has, has taken place in, in various different multifarious ways through human history. And we have to imagine would a- a- operate in weird ways and, and ways that are completely foreign to us in a communist future. Talk a little bit about that. Take this one, Phil. Oh, um, yeah, well, yes, I think that the, the, one of the things that we're really emphasizing is the strangeness of it. Um, we talked, we talked a little bit about sci-fi at the beginning and, uh, I also, I'm not a huge Kim Stanley Robinson person. I like his stuff. Oh, you like, have to like the Mars yeah, trilogy. That's, that's, the yeah, oh, I love, I love the Mars trilogy, but his stuff is really hit and miss. Some of his stuff is like really surprisingly very bad, really weird gender stuff too. He has one, um, whole trilogy where like the main character is this this absurd uh like evolutionary psychologist guy and it's just all about his like sexual fantasies kind of as like this real man who tries to like live in the forest and stuff it's very very strange anyways um one of my favorite um sci-fi authors is cj uh cherry who's not super widely known um but she has really great work for a lot of different reasons one one thing is that it's a little bit more hard sci-fi, but it's especially anthropological sci-fi. Um, and it addresses this kind of very weird question of 
kind of confronting anthropological kind of otherness, both in, in this sci-fi scenario of like, you know, different, uh, uh, different intelligent species, whatever, uh, but also in this sense of uh, the diversification of human cultures through, in this case, like interstellar civilization, right? Um, and the emergence of kind of these alien uh, cultural others through this process of, of um, uh, kind of separation and, and diversification of the human species. And I think that that is, is, you know, one of these other sci-fi elements that we're kind of touching on is this anthropological science fiction kind of element of like, this stuff is strange. You know, it, it would be very weird for us. If we look back at, um, at uh, you know, earlier societies, uh, it's very hard to figure out what it would have really been like to live in like a, you know, a Paleolithic society, right? Like that would have been very strange. It's very difficult to imagine. And there's little guesses that we can have, you know, you can unearth these little uh, uh, sculptures of people wearing uh, the skins of cave lions in the, in like the European Paleolithic. And you can say, oh yeah, I guess they're, this cave lion thing was probably important to their culture. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can't really uh, fully conceive of what that would be like, right? And it's, it's so far kind of in the past, there's so little evidence, we don't have a uh, direct kind of cultural lineage to it. And so looking at a communist future is very similar to that, not because it's equally far away, but because it is a sealed behind the gates of the future, right? We, we don't have this kind of direct kind of lineage to it. Um, one of the other things that was very, uh, very kind of integral to our conception here in this anthropological element um, it's a, there's a very short book by Paul Maddock called Social Knowledge. Uh, it's with the Historical Materialism series. And it's, it's basically his, uh, I think, doctoral uh, dissertation or, or something like that. But it, it looks at uh, this kind of anthropological question of how to conceive of, of capitalism specifically as this, this kind of anthropological system, um, this, this more expansive kind of social system, and how we can apply some of these lessons from anthropology uh, to kind of understanding that. But the core thing, yeah, is just that it's, you know, it's going to be strange and unfamiliar. And what a lot of these utopias kind of do is they go in the exact opposite direction. They say, well, you know, communism is just like today. Uh, I want to make it accessible. So I'm going to say, you know, here's something that you understand and let's communicate it kind of along these lines. Whether or not some of these people are uh, making these arguments really believe that it's that simple, you know, that's a different question. Um, but I think that's kind of the wrong marketing move as well. Like, if you really want to sell communism to people, uh, make it a little weird, you know, make it kind of strange and attractive for these uh, these sort of reasons. Because I think that people don't want this world, right? They don't want something that's familiar because this sucks. Yeah. Like, you kind of, uh, before you were joking about uh, people, you know, in person kind of admitting, yeah, we're going to have like a, a hundred years of like plagues and primitive surgery. But, you know, I live in America. We already have plagues. We already do our own primitive surgery because we don't have health care, right? Uh, I think that this is something that people want to, they don't want the familiar world, right? They, they do want something else. And this is trying to force people to think of what something else actually means. Yeah, if I can jump in there. I mean, um, yeah, like the the whole... Like, yeah, we, we need to be, we need to be convincing. And the re the way to do that, I mean, like Phil said, it's not just like try and repackage the present shitty reality, but, but like marginally better. It's to show how like these, like these wacky, crazy futures that are, you know, they, they sound wacky and crazy to us because they're so different than what we live in, but show that they are in fact possible. Like they're not, like they don't have to be these unattainable, you know, utopias that are, that are just like untouchable only, you know, 
they're not just a, a like a pure up they're not only a product of pure imagination they're possible because of the like the technical systems that we have that can conceivably make you know these these wildly different futures that are better to live in um and uh, i mean i i have a section at uh or we have a section where we talk about um the kind of like the design parameter space of how things are made under capitalism and like you know, we, when people make things, uh, you know, in under capitalism, we obviously make them largely in like an industrial setting. Um, you know, you, the decisions that go into how you're going to make something or even what you're going to make in the first place are largely like a function of the social context in which you're making it. I mean, you know, if you want to make something under capitalism, you, it's typically going to like to, you know, it's typically going to be like a commodity. And if you're going to make a commodity, it has to be amenable to uh, profit and, and, you know, getting uh, money for your shareholders and stuff like that. And in order to do that, it has to interface with this productive system that we live in, which is, you know, there's already existing supply chains. Like, you know, if you want to make it out of metal, you have to like choose a particular metal that you have access to. And importantly, you have to pick one that's, you know, uh, that your, your, your budget lets you design that thing out of and then. Um, so all, all these things that design, that determine like the qualitative character of how things are made um, comes from kind of like the social context where every where 90% of it's already decided for you. You just have like the 10% wiggle room to, to you know, figure out how you're going to do it. Um, and so, but it's not like those are the only ways to make things. You know, if we have a totally different social context like communism, and especially a communism that could be as like, you know, somewhat alien and weird to us because we're not, you know, we're, we're so like afflicted by like commodity logic in our brains. Um, things could look, things could be like totally different in terms of how they're made. Some things might be pretty similar, but you know, like the, like what gets made and how it gets made. Uh, there could be entirely like novel materials that we like either don't use now because it's not profitable, but like they're totally like functionally like usable. Mm. Um, there could be all sorts of like weird supply chain type systems that, uh, again, wouldn't make sense today because they, you know, they're, they don't, they wouldn't be profitable today or they, they're not fast enough or whatever. Uh, but then in the future, you know, people have their own social considerations uh, that have nothing to do with the idea of profit. And it'll, it'll totally change the productive context in which anything is made. And things could be like so wildly different, but goods are still made that meet people's needs. Um, they're just not done through this like planet destroying uh, mode of capitalism that we live in. They're done uh, in a non-dominative, socially deliberative form that we call communism. And it, and it also, you know, communism is free time. Uh, it's also liberation from the worst drudgery of work, the distinction between intellectual and say manual labor, um, the social division of labor in general. I think you're, some of the most powerful parts of your text are where you talk about the way in which social knowledge or like the general intellect that that heaven could be stormed and it could be brought down to earth so that instead of people being afflicted by science, people being afflicted by engineering as they're on the line building something uh, or as they're on their 15th um, iPhone charger that particular year because they're so shit and they keep, keep breaking down. Uh, instead, humanity grasping you know, this sort of fetishized social power and bring it back down to earth within the free association. Talk a little bit about that. Cause that stuff's really good. Yeah. So I, um, there, I wrote a piece for broken rail before, uh, and I need to stop giving my, my essay such like long cumbersome names. I, I titled it technical expertise in communist production. 
Um, sounds and, sounds and great. Sounds like it would be in like an engineering journal. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I want to. I want to. If you know an engineering journal publishing communist theory, can you please send it to me? We I'd, need I'd like our own <laughs> engineering journal. We need EndNotes STEM edition or something like but, that. But that piece, I think Phil and I joked about that once. <laughs> you yeah. should build it, man. Build it. That piece, I. It also has this element of like uh, you got to eat your veggies before you get to the dessert because at the end there's this like speculation of what a communist insurrection would look like in New York. I don't know if you mentioned New York, but like. Uh, I just it's, picked. It's a, got a good payoff. Maybe you just think end. that because you, you you guys are in New York, yeah. but it's uh, <laughs> could be any big city yeah. <laughs> on the coast. Um, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, but I guess like most of the article talks about this uh, element of the the high mix, low volume versus high volume, low mix production. That is also a major element in this piece. Um, so maybe summarize like why why that concept is important yeah for sure so um for for listeners who have heard not familiar with the terminology um so in in engineering and like manufacturing there's a uh, there's kind of two paradigms you use to describe how things are made uh like at a very abstract level uh there's high mix low volume and low mix high volume and volume is just like the quantity of stuff you're making um, mix is, uh, I guess, the the diversity of uh, parts or components or assemblies or whatever that that process uh, or that production line is designed to be able to handle. Um, and so a lot of people, when they think of production, they think of these kind of like Fordist, like mass factories where like, you know, like a ton of, you have like a production line where one person's doing the same thing over and over again. And that still exists. That hasn't gone anywhere. That's actually, I mean, that's that's still around. Um, but that's not the only way that production looks, um, a product, like an example of, of what I, uh, of a, uh, of a low, of low mix. Sorry. It's, it's, I, I need better words for it. Cause it's easy to screw them up in your head. Um, uh, low mix, high volume. That's, uh, like an example would be like certain semiconductor, uh, manufacturing plants where you have a bunch of machines where operators are just like doing the same motions over and over and you're spitting out like a gajillion of these little chips, um, or like a, a plastic fabrication facility where you're uh, injection molding like, you know, thousands or millions of the same little like clamshell or something oh, like I that. Oh, I did that job. I'm well familiar with that one. Yeah, it's uh, not a good time uh, to work in one Although, of as I you can... mentioned in your, um, in your essay, it can be mer- very meditative to tend a machine. So I did have that aspect it's, of it too. It's probably more meditative if you're not worrying about like, you know, earning a minimum wage. Yeah, uh, <laughs> totally. Yeah. But then the, the, the flip side of this is um, a high mix, low volume where, uh, so this is going to be something like a, like a machine shop or like a 3d printer farm or like a, uh, like a, a film converter kind of um, thing where you basically have machines that can be dynamically reconfigured by the people who use them, um, uh, you know, pretty easily to be able to make different things kind of on demand and you can do them in kind of varying volumes. Um, this is in contrast with like kind of the more high volume situation where you have a bunch of fixed tooling where um, a bunch of engineering time and labor is uh, and money is put up front to make a bunch of tooling where like uh, like tooling and machinery where the decisions are kind of made for the operator. Like you don't want to introduce variability into the process. That's kind of like the key behind manufacturing, uh, especially at high volume. And so you you get people who don't have to make decisions. They just have to like do the same motion over and over again because all the variability is like engineered out of the out of the machine whereas uh the other way around um you like a machinist needs to 
And of course there's, you know, it's a, it's a constant battle against like capitalists who are trying to like rationalize their labor and uh, to be able to pay them less and like get more control. But like, you know, a machinist, for instance, they're not the only kind of workers who do this kind of labor. Um, they have to know like, you know, how to configure their machine, like what kind of machine setup is going to be amenable to making like what kind of parts and like how different materials impact with the different types of like end mill bits that you put into your CNC mill and stuff like that. And so the, the reason I differentiate between those here uh, is because um, the role of technical expertise varies between them. Um, and this is kind of like, I think this kind of like technical expertise angle, this productive subjectivity, which we don't talk about too much here, but I think Phil and I are both like deeply interested in it as a topic. Um, it, it's, it's critical to kind of like an anthropological view of what communism would entail. Because, uh, you know, currently, uh, you know, if, you, if you're like a line operator or like a machine operator in a high mix, low volume situation, you have a lot more just kind of like hands-on technical knowledge that you, you're forced to learn as part of your job. Like you have to understand like how to work your machine and like the limits of your machine and like how to get your machine to do what you want. But if you are like a mass manufacturing machine operator and, you know, you show up, you clock in and then you just like pull the lever 3000 times a day and then go home. Um, you know, the reality is actually like these people, like even in these situations, people still learn things. They still like develop skills, but it's not really like recognized as such by management. And and realistically, it is like less skill than, you know, like a machinist or something or something like that. And that's why they're, you know, capitalists are able to pay them less. Um, so the idea is that under communism, we would want um, a kind of a general proliferation, or like like an improvement of like the species uh, productive productive subjectivity. Like we want more people to know how to make things. And so even though we're very like uh, unsympathetic to this kind of idea of communism as a bunch of like hyper-localized autarkic, like make everything in your backyard kind of mm. um, vision, like we're, we're not, we're, we're very against that. I mean, you know, we, we constantly joke about um, artisanal cobalt mining, like how are you going to do that? Right. Um, but um, the Murray Bookchin version of like municipal communism, right? Exactly. It's, it's just, it's silly. And so the, but the, the, even though we're like very against that, the reality is like more things should be made locally. Um, and a big part of that is like environmental, uh, like ecological concerns. Like, you know, you don't necessarily need to like, uh, I mean, yeah, there's, it, it just, you can use more local stuff. There's like, you don't have to transport things all over the planet when, you know, you have the stuff nearby, you could make it with, uh, but also it's a matter of kind of, uh, social deliberative forms. Um, you know, do you need like a big planetary council that like can decide whether or not like, you know, me like as an individual can go make this chair out of like this piece of wood? Like, nah, that's kind of stupid. Mm -hmm. We don't need, you know, you, you want to give people like autonomy to be able to do things, to make things they want to make. Um, but you have to balance that with a, with the necessity of stewarding, uh, the human metabolism with the, with the biosphere. You want to make sure that you know, all these people choosing to make things locally are not, um, you know, like destroying the planet or whatever. But to say that, like, you know, we're making things locally versus we're making things like centralized in a global fashion, that's also itself kind of a misnomer. Like the entire idea of making things locally, like the idea of having that be fun and having that, that be something that doesn't just eat all your time, kind of like how it did before capitalism. Because, you know, I mean, people were just constantly like having to spend time doing handicrafts or like mm -hmm farming local plots you know we don't want to go back to that that's that's the defeats the whole purpose but that's only being able to do that in a way that's not absurdly time consuming the whole the only reason that's possible is because there's certain like we have centralized mass manufacturing that's able to make your 
uh, you know, like your preliminary materials that you then can gather like locally from like a depot or something. And then you can go and make your chair or you can go make your like, you know, your custom electronics that, you know, and it's a, it's obviously more complicated than that. And we, we go into it in more detail in the essay, but like this, this entire like notion of how we relate to uh, production under capitalism, it's very much conditioned by the ways that like, you know, we relate to uh, how our jobs relate to how things are made. And for a lot of people, like, especially in, I guess what you could call the global North, you know, the deindustrialization has made it where a lot of us don't have a lot of like hands-on knowledge, how things are made. Some mm-hmm. of us do, um, you know, still stuff gets, stuff still gets made here, but a lot of us don't. And so, whereas under communism, there would be a lot more kind of just like access to this productive knowledge, I would think. So as we kind of round out the main episode here, and then we'll go to the bonus to get into the weird shit. Um, I guess a, a question that a lot of people might be asking, we're asking here is, you mentioned these deliberative bodies, these associations, and you mentioned that they will bear the lineage of the capitalist institutions they came from. You use examples of uh, universities, of scientific associations, of industrial unions, as, as all of these sort of civil society institutions that will presumably grow over and still under communism bear the imprint of what they once previously were. However, they will now become basically like the, the sinew, like the lifeblood, the deliberative bodies of uh, communist society. How do you imagine that working? Because a lot of people at home are thinking communism. They're thinking like you need to bring Stalin back. You need to like open the mausoleum and Lenin has to come out or you have to do the great proletarian cultural revolution again, but this time harder and better and faster. Like what is the relationship between these balkanized um, NGO or like profit-driven civil society institutions or trade unions, business unions, whatever, and the the free associations of producers that would be necessary in order for this to, to come to pass? Yeah, <clears throat> well, I mean, I think everyone agrees that the start of communism is when Lenin rises from the mausoleum, <laughs> like that Simpsons episode. Yes. Or um, Bordiga in this case. Yeah. Growth um, Bordiga, we get that in the essay too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think that the the one thing to clarify is that we see these in these deliberative institutions as arising in part from existing kind of capitalist institutions, like just you know the idea that this is where productive knowledge, this is where educate uh, like you know scientific knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, is already kind of embedded, um, but also arising from institutions that form in the course of the revolutionary process and in the course of this period of communist construction, right? And so those are themselves kind of significant um, moments that we don't really get the time to discuss in the piece, but we also at the very end of the piece do kind of mention like this whole piece is sort of asking this other question that it's not really answering, right? That's about these earlier phases of like, what does communist construction look like? What uh, do you do when you actually can't have some of this global scale stuff when you're forced to operate at kind of these regional uh, levels, like what is what is possible, what is not possible, right? We don't address those sort of things, but those are crucial questions. And these deliberative institutions under communism arise out of institutions that um, existed in those earlier moments as well. So these things that uh, arose as, <clears throat> um, as uh, you know, like 
revolutionary organizations of like economic warfare against the capitalist world, right? Um, so these are the things that we can think of as like, okay, we're talking about, you know, revolutionary kind of parties, revolutionary armies, revolutionary um, logistical kind of systems, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not just talking about like universities as they kind of exist now and, and unions as they exist now and um, et cetera, et cetera. Those are just the, 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 the um, more ancient kind of lineage of many of those things. But we can imagine, for example, that um, I guess one of the other things that is actually somewhat uh, somewhat annoying is that when people conceive of this process of, of uh, revolutionary transformation coming out of uh, these kind of mild insurrections as they exist today, they do themselves a disservice because they're imagining communism um, uh, arising somehow without any sort of institutional um, organizational structure that's been kind of built up. Like there aren't big agent, like organized agents kind of pushing for this. Not that there has to be like a single party doing that, right? Um, but there would, you would imagine that there would be this process whereby like, for example, labor unions um, are taking on maybe like a more radical edge in certain parts of the world, or you have these other uh, uh, organizations that become kind of revolutionary kind of forces, um, at whether they be like, I don't know, uh, anti-fascist militias that are arising against some sort of militarization from the right or something like that, right? These sort of institutions then become your a part of your basis for, for building this whole, whole thing. Um, so in, in that sense, we have to think a little bit kind of broader, but what are they really for? Well, it is for this idea of like this blooming of productive subjectivity, of re-restoring kind of capacities to the human species that have been lost and realizing new capacities that are uh, present or latent in kind of the collective worker, but don't exist because the collective worker under capitalism only only um, only exists through kind of subdivision. There's these great two uh, two paragraphs from the, the Gradresa and Capital, right, that are contrasted where Marx talks about the collective worker. And in the earlier work, it's all very kind of happy. And that's the stuff that like uh, Tony Negri uses uh, for this like immaterial labor, global multitude worker thing. And then, but in Capital itself, which is the one that Marx chose to publish, right, um, it's very negative. It's like, okay, the global worker like exists, but only subdivided by all these things and only unified in its kind of division. Um, so we're talking about like how do you overcome some of those those divisions in these sort of institutions. So that's restoring a lot of this productive knowledge um, to people, having this wider access through this thing that simultaneously work in education and reproduction, um, having these capacities. And a lot of that is generalizing education much, much wider than it is right now. If you think about how education actually works, it's like kind of absurd, right? Um, like the... I live up in the Northwest and the biggest university um, up here is like the University of Washington. And at the University of Washington, I used to uh, teach uh, geography classes uh, before I, I started my uh, uh, new career as a menial laborer. Uh, I taught these, these geography classes uh, and we would always get this overflow of kids who would come into geography and GIS specifically mapping because, you know, I taught um, uh, like, like mapping and spatial statistics and some coding and stuff. Um, they, there's always be this overflow because the the there was this artificial scarcity induced in like the actual coding departments, right? They only allow in a certain number of students, right? And then that, of course, has to do with all these other kind of social factors of who's getting into those positions, who's able to maintain like whatever 4.0 GPA they're requiring, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's all these artificial scarcities when we're talking about the distribution of productive knowledge. There's places where they bleed out as well. I like to joke that I, uh, I've seen the world spirit on Kwai Show, uh, these Chinese kind of video sharing apps. There's all these 
there's a subgenre of of Chinese um, uh, short video of just these guys who are like tra clearly trained in factories at like low level kind of engineering and technical skill who just build like absurd machines for like their farms and stuff like that. Just these like weird little workshops that arise, but it's because so much technical knowledge, especially this kind of lower level engineering stuff is uh, concentrated in China that there's this general social spillover of those sort of skills. And that's what I kind of like to think about society wide is this like what happens when you actually give people kind of productive knowledge, they use it for all these all these different, uh, you know, all these different purposes. Right now, I think people it's hard for them to fully see what we call um, the mutilation of productive subjectivity. Right. But it really is this idea that you don't know how things work. You don't know how to make things. You don't know the science behind making things. Um, like just to, uh, to end, I think a good one good kind of point is because he just died, Alfredo uh, Bonanno. All right. The Italian insurrectionary uh, anarchist. Right. Um, and everyone likes Bonanno because he's like this aesthetic riot guy or, or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. But no, if you actually read Bonanno, it's very, very interesting. He is a, he's. I am convinced that he is like a very, very orthodox Marxist. Um, and he's writing in the 80s and he's talking about uh, all this stuff economically going on in the 80s. And he says, oh, yeah, financial capital, like this is not important. The financialization is not important. What's really, really central is this concentration of productive knowledge into these specific locations that divides us between these included spheres of people with access to productive knowledge and control who are able to program these productive systems and this vast majority of excluded. And he, he says, you know, it's like a Teutonic Knight's castle uh, and it's only surrounded by the piece of graveyards because he's, you know, a beautiful writer. Uh, but Bonanno is very, uh, very correct in this regard. He, he basically says, look, the, the problem is that all of these, these people are turned into big, button pushers, right? Like there's this vast portion of society that if they know how to do anything, it's simply pushing buttons. So to bring it back to this, um, like my own personal life and this idea of communism is free time, we're talking about like this kind of rage against what work is, right? Like when I go to work, I'm at this giant sortation facility. I work nights, right? So I, I drive out there in the middle of the night to the port uh, of Tacoma, which is like this g giant secret city that's like the real city of Tacoma and everything else is sort of an appendage to it. Um, and I enter this immense warehouse, right? And above the warehouse, uh, if you're walking through a multiple football field size kind of warehouse and above you are these conveyor belts just whirring the whole time and there's these three-dimensional scanning boxes, like these boxes of light that all these packages are hurtling through at high speeds. And this thing is called the grid, right? Mm -hmm. So you're just walking below this, this giant mechanized grid. And then when you go to work, right, you're just going to stand and for, for, there's a couple different, you know, occupations, but for me, I'm just going to stand in the back of a truck and these packages are going to get hurtled at me from this grid, this mechanized system at a pace that I have no control over right? And they're violently hurtled like into my legs, into my body. And then I have to stack them as fast as I can. That is what work is under capitalism. Like that's like kind of the epitome of what work becomes. It's just this idea of you're, you're just sitting there and these generic commodity forms, these boxes are just getting hurtled at you violently and bruising you and, you know, causing all these injuries. Uh, these technical injuries, you call it struck by, struck against, right? You have to log it when it happens. Uh, just injuring you. You're getting buried under these fucking boxes, this massive commodities, right? And then you're just stacking it as fast as you fucking can. 
and you have no control over this. It's all automated. There's some computer system that's told the thing has to send this many boxes down this fucking chute, you know? And then people create these uh, superstitious systems. Like there's one chute that's fucking cursed because everyone gets hurt on it, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what we're really trying to break through is, is this sort of this sort of mutilated type of, of work where everyone's just kind of a, a button pusher or like a stacker of boxes uh, working at the service of these obscure and opaque technical systems. And in order to make those things not obscure and opaque and to give control over it, you have to uh, formulate institutions that cultivate kind of the blossoming of productive subjectivity. So you have to distribute this kind of widespread knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a revolutionary task as well. So one of the things that we emphasize is, you know, uh, you need things like technical schools. You need the, the, these kind of organizations of communist engineers. Uh, all of that is, is really, really necessary. Not just this idea of everyone's going to go work on a farm, which I hate being a former farm worker. <laughs> and so, yeah, a lot of the piece, the latter part of the piece describes like what society could be like when these immense creative forces that are suppressed through the not only is like the the capability of production uh, suppressed by the the profit motive, but also the creativity of the workers and of people in general. And so we'll get to that in the bonus. Um, we're going to learn about how Santa will be real mm -hmm. and the mushroom mafia and mm -hmm. propeller hats and all that. Mm -hmm. So please, if you want to hear that, subscribe at patreon.com slash the Antifada. If you subscribe at the $10 level for the year, you get a big discount and I'll send you the George Floyd Uprising book by the Vortex Group. Just DM me your address. So thanks for listening and please sign up. Yeah, you thought uh, you left the Vortex when Vincent Bevins left the room? No, we're going right The Vortex hasn't left you. Yeah, we'll see you guys on the other side. You're not going to want to miss this one.